0: A time for our Muslim community segment. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. How have you how you've been uh, coping with the extreme hot weather over the last few weeks? Uh, alhamdulillah, we're managing pretty well. Um, I suppose we have just have to include a few more dips in the ocean, but otherwise, alhamdulillah, we're managing. Alhamdulillah. Uh, well, we continue with the discussion on uh, the Islamic history of Iran. Uh, you can continue, Maula. JazakAllahu uh, Khairan, Muftisab. Yes, dear listeners, we are ap- approaching the end of our discussion on Iran. We've been discussing Iran over the last uh, quite a few episodes. The last two weeks, we discussed the Safawids from the 16th century, which brought about Shiism within Iran and uh, inshallah from today we will today and next week inshallah we will end off we'll be discussing iran over the last few centuries so today we'll be racing through the last two or three centuries of iranian history and bringing us up to the final segment next week which will be iran today we will speak about traveling and the islamic historical sites one can visit there we have discussed the political beginnings of Shi'ism in Iran, and I won't be discussing the theological aspect of Shi'ism. That has been clearly elucidated by many ulama and scholars, most notably Marhum Sheikh Faha, Karan. Should anyone want to learn more, they can listen to his lectures, which are widely available. Our focus is on history, which does coincide with politics from time to time, and as well as the travel, which, inshallah, as we mentioned, we will come to next week. So looking at the history, 16th century, for about 200 years, we have the Safavids. And thereafter, there is a certain general which uh, rises to power. His name is Nadir Shah. And he rose to power during a period of chaos in Iran. He reunites the Iranian realm and removes the invaders. He thereafter becomes so powerful that he decides to depose the last members of the Safavid dynasty, which had ruled Iran for at least 200 years, and he proclaims himself as the Shah of Iran in the year 1736, which brings about the end of the Safavids. And he is known to be an amazing general for the Iranians, and his numerous campaigns created a great empire, which at its maximum extent briefly encompassed Iran, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, the northern Caucasus, Iraq, Turkey, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Bahrain, Pakistan, Oman, and even the Persian Gulf. So a huge empire. But unfortunately for him, his military spending had a ruinous effect on the Iranian economy. He was assassinated in 1747, and that, in, that empire disintegrated. The Qajars took over thereafter. They established their own dynasty, but they are not very really well-remembered. are more known for being incompetent and causing a decline in the iranian economy fast forward to the year 1908 and there's a really important finding in iran it's not an ancient treasure but it is a treasure all right and it changes the politics once again in iran at a place called masjid Sulaiman, oil was discovered and up till this time there wasn't much interest in iran But this discovery intensifies the rivalry of Great Britain and Russia for power over the nation. And as with other countries in the Middle East, the scramble of the foreign nations began to gain control over the resources of this country. In 1909, there was the Anglo-Persian oil company which was formed. The British, the Germans, the Russians are all fighting. 1915, the British... They take over a port called Bushehr in 1916. The Russian forces occupy Qum and Kashan. And like this, there are many foreign nations all scrambling over Iran. In 1921, an army officer named Reza Shah is assisted by the British to establish a military dictatorship. And he was subsequently elected as the hereditary Shah which ended the Qajar dynasty and founded the new Pahlavi dynasty. And within four years, he established himself as the most powerful person in the country by suppressing, by suppressing rebellions and establishing order. And he said that he centralized government power and was successful in bringing order to the country. But he was, nevertheless, as historians mention, a dictator who was only able to rule with Britain's permission. He establishes good contacts with, his, with neighboring countries, with, uh, with Turkey, he, Kamar Ataturk is his, his great friend. And in 1941, however, for him, along with Russia, the UK now forces Riza Shah into exile and places his son, Muhammad Riza Pahlavi, on the throne. So Riza Shah is ill, and he looks for a haven and for treatment. And in 1944, he dies. Whereabouts? none other than Johannesburg. So he had come to Johannesburg, to South Africa, and he died here in 1944. His son has taken ascended the throne, but in the year 1951, a man by the name of Muhammad Musadiq is named as the prime minister, something which Muhammad Riza had no choice but to concede to due to the uprisings in the country. And this is where the history gets really interesting. So in 1951, the oil nationalization law is passed, much to the horror of the British. The British had full control prior to that over the oil. Um, I- I'll spare listeners the finer details of the build-up to this oil nationalization law. But basically, there was really appalling conditions for the Iranian war- workers at the oil plants. The, Brit- the British weren't allowing locals access to financials. The majority by far of the the profits were all going uh, to to British companies. Very little was being fed back to the uh, local, to the Iranian economy. There were one-sided deals which saw the majority of the profits conveniently elude all of the Iranians. And all of this led now to the nationalization. And the Prime Minister, Mohammad Mossadegh, he now wants uh, the oil to be nationalized and to be made the property of the Iranian country. So Britain was in a fury and responded to the oil nationalization law by building up its military presence off the shores of Iran. It had given up on persuading Mossadegh, and saw forceful action as its only discourse. Uh, It imposed economic sanctions that devastated the the Iranian economy. Uh, They closed down the very large Abadan refinery. They sent all the employees home, prevented any tankers from bringing oil to the market And it was prevented from exporting a drop of oil without Britain reporting to the United Nations that it must be returned because it was stolen property. All of this didn't amount to much as Iran endured the blow for the struggle for sovereignty. Britain took the case to the World Court where it faced an embarrassing loss. Thereafter, London concluded that in order to undermine Mohammed... Mossadzik in a more successful way, they would need support from the USA. President Truman at the time didn't want anything to do with it. Britain realized that with such mass public support for Mossadzik and for the law, it was going to need a strategy that created enough chaos to be able to uproot his influence over the nation. And London thereafter began laying the foundations for a coup. The British forces had been conducting covert actions against Mossadegh over the past several months, some of which included propaganda and funding rabble rousers. The new government in the USA uh, ushered in President, President Eisenhower, who approved the CIA's efforts to work with Britain. In 1953, the CIA and the MI6 orchestrated a coup against Mossadegh's government. And this has been widely uh, declassified information and made uh, public, so it 's not some conspiracy theory or something which is just one narrative. Many people have mentioned it. Um, I remember there was the economic hitman, John Perkins, who also mentioned it in his book as well. but besides him, many others were also mentioned, it was it was termed Operation Ajax, and they generated the following tactics. ...to remove Mossadegh from power, which is pretty interesting, I suppose. The CIA approved a few million dollars to be used, this is in the 1950s... ...to be used in any way that would bring about the fall of Mossadegh. They began to manipulate public opinion against him. They sought to create and enhance hostility, distrust and fear of him and his government... ...by recruiting agents to generate such feelings... They attempted to paint him as a, as a corrupt, power-hungry, Islamophobic, and a communist. Facts <clears throat> were, were, were paid to stage attacks against leaders and prominent figures that would be reported as actions ordered by Mossadegh himself. There was a certain general who was, um, was to bribe as many officers and soldiers to help carry out whatever actions necessary were required to help their cause and thousands of Iranians were paid to be demonstrators to create a massive anti-government rally the day of the coup. And the mayhem and chaos which was created and ensued thereafter, eventually at Mossadegh's home as well, he, he was attacked and he managed to escape. And thereafter, he uh, handed himself over the following day and Britain's puppet was installed in power. He took over and he dismissed all the pro mossadegh officials Mossadegh himself was sentenced to three years of prison and then placed under house arrest for the rest of his life in his home village. So, so much for democracy. And after his removal, the new government, and i quote what was mentioned, it said the new government restored the flow of Iranian oil to world markets in substantial quantities, giving the United States and Great Britain the lion's share of the restored British holdings. A few years later, Muhammad Reza Shah dismissed the parliament and he launched his White Revolution, which was an aggressive modernization program which overturned the wealth and influence of landowners and clerics and disrupted rural economies, which led to the rapid westernization of the country and of the people and prompted concerns over democracy and human rights. But obviously, as he was a close ally to the power's uh, abroad, there was there were nobody better than Ireland. Twenty years following the fall of Mossadegh, the oil was successfully nationalized and Iran, Iran became uh, a, a wealthy, extremely wealthy nation. But the wealth, as it was planned, was accumulated at the top with the Shah and, and those by his side. The majority of the population remained to be extremely impoverished and inequality was exacerbated by the Shah's policies. He had sidelined the Shia mullahs, and he continued as a dictator that was supported by the USA and and, and others, and which obviously set the stage for the Iranian revolution of 1979. Come the 1970s, for the first time, the secular intellectuals of the country began turning to the Shia clerics, uh, and Ayatollah Khomeini in particular, and they argued that with the help of these clerics, the Shah could be overthrown. So they joined forces to overthrow the Shah. In January 1978, they, incensed by what was considered to be slanderous remarks against Khomeini in a local newspaper, thousands of young students took to the streets and they were followed by thousands more Iranian youth and who all began protesting the regime's uh, excesses. The Shah at the time was weakened by cancer and was stunned by the sudden outpouring of hostility against him, he vacillated between concession and repression and assuming that the protest would be part of some international conspiracy against him. Many people were killed by the government forces in the anti-regime protests and the autocratic monarchy of Muhammad Riza Shah now face a broad coalition of opposition forces, but the opposition ultimately came to be dominated by the clerics of the Shia's Country uh, of, of, of Iran's uh, um, Shia clerics, so they began to dominate the scene against the Shah. So, despite severe repression against the protesters and a series of demonstrations and strikes over approximately two years, that it all came to fall in 1978 when millions of opponents of the Shah's regime clogged the streets of Iran's cities and work stoppages paralyzed the country. The Shah fled into exile in January 1979, and the exiled cleric Ayatollah Khomeini returned from exile to lead the new Republic of Iran. So 1979 saw the revolution, uh, the Iranian revolution. The revolution actually turned out to be quite a spectacle for the Iranians and the supporters because it was a peaceful shift of power to their hands and the fleeing of the Shah, leaving the country in their hands. So the foreign powers who had interfered and meddled in Iranian politics two or three decades prior to that had once again created their own boogeyman. And that brings us to the end of our discussion today on the recent or the last two or three centuries in Iran. And inshallah ta'ala, we hope next week to discuss something a lot more lighthearted and more enjoyable and not so depressing and we hope to be discussing travel to the amazing country of Iran today and uh, for people to understand how what a wonderful country it actually is to visit. It's not a police state. Uh, There aren't religious police coming around forcing you to convert to Shiism or anything of the sort but it is a place where people can visit and visit a number of the Islamic historical Sunni sites which are still found in Iran today. Khan uh, for sharing the background information. I think it's very important to understand the and context of the role that Iran plays in world politics and keeping in mind all that you shared with us it gives us the true perspective on that. Zakhmal Khan. alaikum <laughs> warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Wa alaikum assalam warahmatullahi taala wabarakatuh.